you have taken blood money, blood money, to go out and you, Hunter Biden, to do your drugs and all your depravity, well, it's all going to come out in living color, okay? All going to come out in living color. That money, sir, was stolen from the Chinese people in slave labor. Remember that, stolen from them. That was Steve Bannon claiming there is more damaging information coming about Hunter Biden and his dealings in China. The claims by Bannon, Donald Trump's former campaign chief, who is now under indictment on fraud charges brought by federal prosecutors in New York, come after a series of New York Post stories revealing purported emails by the Democratic candidate's son about his overseas business deals in Ukraine and China while his father was vice president. Are these stories the smoking gun that Trump allies claim, or are they part of a Russian influence operation? We'll discuss with two top intelligence experts, Shane Harris of the Washington Post and Matt Olson, the former chief counsel to the National Security Agency. And we'll talk to a former top Twitter executive, Vivian Schiller, about the social media giant's controversial decision to restrict access to the New York Post stories on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So once again, we have dueling narratives from the media. On the one hand, the mainstream media, The Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, all saying that there's a Russian, a likelihood that this is a Russian influence operation that brought these Hunter Biden emails to light. And then you have the conservative media claiming, as I said in the intro, that these are a smoking gun that demand answers from the Biden camp. And I've got to say right now, whether or not it's a smoking gun, the emails, if true, do raise some intriguing questions, but we don't know the answer as to the authenticity of the emails. And we certainly don't know precisely how they came to light. And all that has given a lot of people pause. When this story broke late last week, I think, you know, we sort of impulsively were, you know, really critical of the social media companies because of this idea that, you know, here's a story that's out there that, you know, we don't know whether it's accurate or not. We don't know, as you say, the authenticity of, of these emails, but we don't know that it's not true. And so for a social media company to basically shut it down and limit or you know, ban access to it so people can't send the links around, you know, kind of, I think, struck us as, you know, concerning. But as you think about the sort of context here, it is complicated. You know, we're, we're you know, two weeks out from an election in an era when information spreads so rapidly and is weaponized so easily 
that you know makes you realize these things are a little more complicated than maybe it seems at first blush. And I just want to mention very quickly, you know, we have a new Yahoo News YouGov poll out. And there was a, to me, just a, a stunning piece of data in there that I think goes to the larger problem here that makes this complicated. Half of Trump supporters believe that top Democratic politicians are involved in an elite child sex trafficking ring and that Trump is trying to break it up. That is, that is the Q, <laughs> That is the core of the QAnon conspiracy theory. And so it just makes you realize how serious yeah. this disinformation problem is. And I think that Twitter did not handle this well. We will get into that with Vivian Schiller. But I also am somewhat sympathetic to um, the position that they and these social media companies are in because this is not easy stuff to deal with. They are caught in the middle. They're also caught between liberals and, and conservatives. And, um, you know, I don't know. I think this is going to go on for a long time until they can figure out some some principles and rules to abide by. All right. Well, we got some uh, excellent guests to talk about it. So let's get right to it. We are now joined by two of our favorite guests when it comes to all matters of intelligence and counterintelligence. Shane Harris, the uh, accomplished intelligence reporter for The Washington Post, and Matt Olson, former director of the National Counterterrorism Center, former general counsel of the NSA, and an informal advisor to the Biden campaign. Shane and Matt, welcome back to Skullduggery. Hey, it's great to be back. Great to be here with you guys. A lot of interest, of course, in this Hunter Biden email story that has caused quite a controversy in the last weeks of the campaign. Now, you had an important story of your own in the Washington Post last week about how President Trump had been warned by his national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, that Russian intelligence was targeting Rudy Giuliani, who, of course, appears to have been the source for the Hunter Biden email story. Tell us what you learned. So what we found was back in December, early December of 2019, Rudy Giuliani, while he was off in Ukraine, meeting with pro-Russian Ukrainian former lawmakers, uh, and this part has been reported, uh, was trying to dig up part, uh, dirt on Joe Biden. People may remember he met with this guy named Andre Derkash, who he said had a lot of good information about corruption and Burisma and Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, all of that stuff that was at the core of the impeachment hearings. What we found is the U.S. intelligence officials were aware of these meetings, were intercepting communications on the foreign side that showed that these Russian assets, essentially, were trying to funnel disinformation back to the White House via Rudy. Rudy was not an unwitting participant in this, as, as, as it's been described to us. He was over there looking for this information, trying to find people who could get it to him. And this sets off alarms at the upper reaches of the intelligence community and the national security leadership, because here's the president's personal lawyer 
meeting with these individuals known to be working on behalf of Russia uh, and trying to obtain information that could be damaging to the president's political adversaries. So you've got both a counterintelligence problem kind of like classically right there, uh, but also a real political issue because the president is about to be impeached in the House and his top advisors are terrified that he's going to listen to Rudy, hear some new things about Hunter and Joe Biden and go out, as they put it to us, and say something stupid and politically damage himself even more than he already was. So uh, the decision is made to send in Robert O'Brien, the national security advisor, to say to the president, look, you can't trust what's coming from Rudy Giuliani. We know he's your lawyer. You're going to do what you want. But you need to understand he's being, as they put it, worked by Russian assets in Ukraine, and you need to have this information if you're going to listen to him. Trump, as we're told the meeting goes, sort of shrugs it off, shrugs his shoulders and says, that's Rudy. You know, what are you going to do? And O'Brien walks out of that meeting, not at all sure whether he got through to the president. Uh, Giuliani is at the White House about a week later, and then sometime after that is meeting with the president at Mar-a-Lago. And I think it's safe to say that the president's belief that there is a Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, Burisma conspiracy has not abated uh, even after having gone through impeachment. Quick follow up for Shane, and then I want to bring Matt into this. But uh, just tell us a little bit more about Andre Durkash and, you know, call him an asset. Yeah. Is he a Russian spy? I mean, what what is his role? What do we know about him and how sure is the U.S. intelligence community of, of that? So Derkash is formerly a member of the Party of Regions in Ukraine, which is this now defunct political party that it was the, the kind of the pro-Russia party within Ukraine. By his own account, uh, his father was a KGB officer and Derkash went to a KGB affiliated school. His sort of Russian connections and sympathies, I think, have been pretty well known to people who follow that part of the world for some time. The, the labeling of him as a Russian asset is now an official matter of record and in two forums, actually. One, the Director of National Intelligence's office uh, in August put out a statement on foreign election interference in which it identified Derkash as a conduit for disinformation from Russia that was meant to, as they put it, denigrate Joe Biden and harm his campaign. And then more recently, the Treasury Department has actually sanctioned Derkash for these election interference activities and labeled him, in their words, a Russian asset. Now, that doesn't mean that he is like an employee of the GRU. This means that he is somebody who works on behalf of Russian interests and, as the intelligence community sees it, is you know, wittingly doing the bidding of Russian intelligence services. Now, how far that goes up to Vladimir Putin himself directing it, I'm not sure we know that. But notably, in the Treasury statement, they said that he's been acting in this capacity for years. So I think what this tells us and our reporting corroborates this, there's essentially kind of an intelligence file going back some time on Derkash. And so I think that the intelligence community's confidence that he works for Russia is quite high. So Matt, from your perspective and background with the U.S. intelligence community, having worked as the top lawyer at the NSA, what does this tell us about how we should look at the emails, the reporting that the New York Post has put out there about Hunter Biden and his business dealings in Ukraine and China. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, 
The really remarkable reporting from Shane and his colleagues at the Washington Post is, is part of a broader story here and largely corroborates the concern about Russian disinformation activities in the run-up to the 2020 election. You know, I think the way the intelligence community would be looking at this, Mike, is, you know, is this consistent with what we have seen from Russia uh, in the past? Is this consistent with uh, their objectives? You know, the answer to that is yes. Their objectives in 2016 and into 2020 by, uh, you know, sort of unanimous consensus of the intelligence community is to, is to interfere with the election and to sow discord and discontent and, uh, in this case, in 2020, to, to denigrate Joe Biden. So it's consistent with their objectives. It's, it's also consistent with the, the types of activities, that, the means by which they seek to attain those objectives. And now, you know, they have the we have the story from The Washington Post showing that, uh, you know, that they're using somebody like the president's personal lawyer as a conduit uh, for this information. So I think uh, I think it's, you know, the the broader picture here is one that all kind of fits well together. And I think it helps to corroborate the the reports that we're seeing from. Okay, I want to drill down, though, on two phrases here uh, that you both use, Russian influence operations and Russian disinformation. Now, influence operations go back to 2016. Clearly, the release of the Podesta emails and the DNC emails, that was a Russian influence operation. We now know the Russians hacked them, funneled them to WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks released them for the purpose of influencing the American electorate. But it wasn't a disinformation operation because those emails were, in fact, authentic and real. And I heard you both using both phrases, but when it comes to the Hunter Biden emails that the New York Post has released, it's not clear to me whether this is an influence operation or a disinformation operation because I have not seen where the Biden campaign or Hunter Biden's lawyer has challenged the authenticity of these emails. So I'd like you both to address whether or not we're looking at a potential influence operation or a disinformation operation. Matt, you want to take that first and then Shane. Uh, sure. Uh, very quickly. I mean, I think first, you're right, Mike, it's really important to distinguish between those, between those two things. And in 2016, we saw both a influence operation uh, with the hacking and releasing of emails, and we saw disinformation, right, through, through, through trolls and even state media, Russian-run state media. That was a disinformation campaign. And we're seeing both, well, we're seeing the disinformation now, for sure, in the 2020 election. I think, right, we don't know on these emails, these Hunter Biden emails, we don't know, are they authentic or are they not? I think there is, for the reasons that we've both sort of talked about, there's reasons to doubt the authenticity of them, given sort of what we've seen from Russia in the past, and also given what's been concluded. But wouldn't it, wouldn't it be easy for the Hunter Biden's lawyer to come out and say, look, we have the original emails these are not real. These are not authentic. And I have not heard them say that. I want Shane to answer that. But let me just suggest one possibility here, which maybe Shane wants to pick up on, which is, I think in classic disinformation operations, they may dump emails or documents where some of it is real and some of it isn't real, right? I mean, so that way it becomes harder in this particular case for the Biden campaign. They don't want to start parsing 
emails would, that might be accurate not and emails. Take, it would I mean, not just, take much to discredit those emails by just showing one of them has been doctored. Shane, well, to, you to your point, this. yeah, to just pick up on Mike's point and, and Dan's point, you know, if this is not Hunter Biden's laptop, you'd think they could come out and just say that. I mean, so there's a question about that too. I agree with you that if the campaign thought that there was a way to neutralize this story by declaiming any of this information, you would think they would have done it by now, unless they calculating that somehow this is just gives the story more oxygen. And to be clear, I don't have any insight into that. But then, you know, you're absolutely right. There's this distinction between influence operations and disinformation. There's even a third category, which I think we used in the Rudy story, which is misinformation, which is where you're taking something that may be ostensibly true or have a kernel of truth, and you're sort of skewing people in a different direction or you're spinning them. I think that the words and the terminology is really important because it gets back to like what exactly, if anything, are the Russians trying to do here? And, and what we noted in, in, the, in the Rudy story, where he's off looking for this information on the Bidens and the president's being warned about it, is you know, we can't connect that to the laptop right now. But the category of information that Rudy is interested in finding from these Ukraine sources with Russian connections is the same category or flavor of material, if you like, that's being leaked by, you know, or leaked to the New York Post. And so, you know, if you take it as the Rudy in Ukraine business, A, is the product of some kind of Russian influence operation in that they're trying to get stuff into his hands to put back into the political bloodstream here, it may be that B is something that the Russians are, that is the New York Post, are, are thrilled to see, but potentially had nothing really to do with other than sort of priming Rudy's, you know, uh, kind of, you know, fertile mind uh, to this possibility of a Burisma conspiracy back in December when they got him all juiced up about tapes and other kind of information. I should point out that Radcliffe, the director of national intelligence, did go on Fox Business Today and say uh, that there is no intelligence that suggests that the Hunter Biden emails are part of a Russian intelligence operation for whatever that's worth. That is the official comment of the director of national intelligence. But I want to drill down even more on the Hunter Biden story. I mean, there are so many sort of odd, wacky elements to this. The official account from the New York Post is that the laptop gets dropped off at the computer repair guy in Wilmington, who's apparently legally blind, but somehow notices that this is from Hunter Biden's uh, foundation or has some connection to Hunter Biden, and he's able to open it up and then provides it to the, uh, the Rudy Giuliani uh, who provides it to the New York Post, and the FBI and Hunter Biden never comes back and picks it up. Obviously, there's lots of red flags here, but Shane, from what we know at this point, is this story not credible, <laughs> dubious, or might it actually be what happened? I mean, I think it might actually be what happened, and it's, you know, fishy as hell at the same time. You know, there is this you, know, you laid out the sequence of purported events very well, and it, and it sort of, you know, it sort of strains the imagination to even think about, like, you know, the blind computer store owner and the laptop being dropped off. I mean, it sounds sort of farcical, but, you know, Rudy Giuliani's lawyer 
is on record saying that this computer store owner got in touch with Rudy Giuliani and that's how they became aware of the information. Okay, that's a fairly checkable statement. But what's interesting to me in all of this, and this is where I think it gets very fishy, is this computer store owner who should we, so we should say is both a supporter of the president and is on record with journalists saying he thought that the impeachment was a sham uh, and was trying to get this information to the authorities, he says, because he wanted it to come up in the impeachment as a sort of point of, of, of exculpatory evidence for the president to show that, no, Joe Biden really is as corrupt as they say. There's this weird gap in time between that and when he purportedly gets in touch with Rudy Giuliani. And that is like the sort of lacuna that he will not talk about. He doesn't want to say how he got in touch with Rudy. He says he had some interlocutors. He won't say who they are. He won't say exactly when it is. And, you know, that is the point where I think, you know, a lot of the suspicion is sort of driving at, which is say it's not dispositive of Russia being involved, but you've got this sort of squishy area and a guy like Rudy Giuliani with his track record and this kind of, you know, a little mysterious computer store owner, that, I mean, to be clear, that's the part where we're still asking questions. But to me, that's the very important part. Like what motivates this owner to get in touch with Rudy Giuliani and who is sort of in the circle when that is happening? And, you know, and also how does Steve Bannon get involved, by the way? That's <laughs> stuff we still don't know yet. Yeah. I mean, there are two main sources, right, for this story. One, Steve Bannon facing fraud charges and the other, Rudy Giuliani, who's out digging up this information in Ukraine to, to help his client. So, you know, I, I'm glad people like Shane and others are digging into the details of, the, of this to figure out if, there's, if, how, if there is any credibility to it. But just, just on its face, even the way today I, I was reading the, the, so the New York Post, some of the, the questions about the, who was willing to sign off on the story uh, in terms of putting their name on the byline, raising questions about it. Well, and one of them who was willing to had been a had been a producer for Sean Hannity. Right. And the veteran reporter from the New York Post, who I think has been there since 2007, who insisted that his name be taken off it. So that is also a question. And also, I mean, there are I mean, if just in terms of the journalism here, setting aside whether the underlying facts are true at all, it was pretty appalling. For one thing, they never sought comment, apparently, from the Biden campaign which is a pretty fundamental thing if you're you know, accusing them of these kinds of things. And then secondly, and I think this actually goes to the whole controversy over why Twitter refused to you know, allow people to share the New York Post story um, on their platform, is that the New York Post did not delete any of the um, personal information on these emails that did identify you know, Hunter Biden and, and others. So there's that part of the narrative as well. There are two other pieces of this that leap out at me as um, on the other side of, you know, whether we should be taking some of this more seriously. First is that FBI subpoena. What is that all about? At some point, I believe, Shane, correct me if I'm wrong, it's December of last year, the FBI takes possession of this laptop with a subpoena. That suggests they are investigating something related to this. And again, for what it's worth, Radcliffe said today, it's not Russian disinformation. That's what Radcliffe said. Although, although NBC, I think Kendallanian, I think reported 
that that there the is, that there is, is an investigation related to this, but AP it, an influence uh, of an influence operation, right? Or interference, right. I think was the word they used. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And number two, you know, we all focused initially on the email suggesting that Hunter had helped set up a meeting with his father then the vice president, for a Burisma executive. And the Burisma executive apparently thanks Hunter for the opportunity to do so. It's not clear whether the meeting ever took place, whether that email was sent before the meeting or after, but it does suggest that at least there were discussions about trying to influence uh, then Vice President Biden. And the other is the email about China in which there's that intriguing reference to holding 10% of the equity held by H, Hunter, for the big guy. Shane, what do you make of the FBI subpoena and the China email? Well, I think you're right that the subpoena indicates there is some law enforcement interest in the laptop, right? Now, interestingly, the way that the laptop store owner tells the story if I think I have this chronology right, he's in contact, he says, with the FBI. They don't want to take the laptop initially, but they make a copy of the laptop. Then they come back for the laptop. So now we're speculating here, but does that mean as they examined their copy of it, they saw something that they thought was relevant or germane to an investigation, and then they wanted to go back and get the laptop itself to then have chain of custody over it? Maybe. I mean, that would follow some protocol uh, that we're used to seeing. Does this mean they're investigating Hunter Biden for something that he was up to? Possibly, right? Now that it is in their possession, there's this reporting, as you said, that the FBI is interested in some kind of foreign interference piece of this. We don't really, and we've tried to figure this out at the Post too, we don't really know what that means exactly. So, you know, we may sort of be looking, you know, looking at an investigation that is pursuing kind of parallel to this one that we don't even know about, that, that we're, we're speculating here and going only on the fact that this thing was subpoenaed. And that does not appear, by the way, to be a made-up document. The US, AUSA's name on that subpoena is, is, the, is a real AUSA in Delaware. There's no reason to believe that's a falsified document. Now, as to the, to the content itself, I think the China email is very interesting. And, I, and, and frankly, I'm kind of surprised that the president and others aren't kind of trying to zero in on some of this stuff more. You know, the, the questions of Burisma and Ukraine, I, that just feels like if I'm just sort of putting on the, uh, the campaign skullduggery cap, right, that feels like old stuff. It's like we're over that. We went there. China's new. China's different. And instead, you're seeing things like vague tweets from the president about huge scandal, but they're not specifying what it's about. I suspect that Trump will ask Joe Biden about it in the debate on Thursday. You know, who is the big guy? What is this about? And that Biden will be prepped with an answer. But, you know, if it's surfacing legitimate questions, then by all means, you know, ask them. I just don't know that I've seen anything in those emails that leads me to think that that actually answers the questions. It's just raising more up. And I wanted to ask um, Matt about that, because let's just posit for a moment that these emails are authentic. And let's focus on the on the Burisma email. So setting up a some kind of a meeting with this Burisma advisor, either for the future or the email, you know, says that it, it already happened. It's unclear from the email. And let's say, you know, Biden does have some cursory meeting with this guy. I mean, 
what's the impact of, of that? I mean, you know, like, w- what does it tell you about Joe Biden? I mean, I, like, I tend to agree in the in the current environment with with Shane's observation about, you know, this Ukraine Burisma story to the extent it's sort of being, you know, sort of uh, dredged up again in the context of the of the of these you know, purported emails is really old news. I mean, I, the, the, the broader picture is, you know, I'm sort of arguing with the premise of your question a little bit, Dan, but the broader picture is this has just been sort of re- basically debunked over the past year uh, by everyone who's looked at it carefully with any credibility in terms of Biden's uh, role in Ukraine and trying to influence the prosecutor there and and how, you know, and his involvement in trying to be, get the prosecutor to be more aggressive, right, uh, to go after Burisma and other and, and corruption. So I, I just, you know, I think there's a sense that this has been pretty well litigated at this stage and, and won't ha- and doesn't have any real impact. I mean, that sort of is the premise of my question, yeah. which, which is that even if it happened, even if something yeah. happened, right. you know, there's a little bit of smoke, maybe, but really no fire. Yeah, and he, and exactly. I think that uh, even if there is some accuracy to the email, for uh, I think it's right. It, it has no impact at this point. On the Burisma Ukraine part of it, but on the China part of it, holding 10 for the big guy, that it would seem to me would could raise a lot of troubling questions. But I want to pick up on a point Shane made a minute ago, which is that the FBI subpoena appears to be real. And it was signed by a real AUSA who could presumably and the you know dispute it if, if if he didn't actually sign it. So that means there's some or has been some sort of investigation into something that Hunter Biden has been doing or was up to. And let's just think this through for a minute. Joe Biden wins the election as the polls indicate he is likely to do at this point. The Biden Justice Department takes over and there is an outstanding investigation into the president's son. Are we going to have to have a special counsel right off the bat (laughs) under the Biden uh, Justice Department? It's going to give us something new to talk about, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. How do you avoid that? I mean, are you saying these stories repeat themselves? It's (laughs) no, no, I think, Mike, you're exactly right. I mean, we're, we're, we're obviously for present purposes, focused on how this thing lands in the middle of a campaign and whether Russia's behind it or not. But it's obviously pointing to this thing in the corner that like, you know, Hunter Biden might be being investigated. And how is that going to play when you have, you know, the son of the president possibly facing criminal charges? To be clear, I have no information on that. But, you know, if, if this were nothing but a story about Hunter Biden's laptop was subpoenaed in December of 2019 by the FBI. That would be the story. And we would yeah, be and it that strikes out. me as a pretty big story. Well, let, me, let me bring Matt into this, because as someone who, Matt, you were a chief of staff to a FBI director, uh, Bob Mueller. You remember well the controversy, multiple controversies that James Comey stepped into by revealing investigations at the end of a presidential campaign. What do you think Chris Ray, the current FBI director, is thinking right now? <laughs> Hiding under his desk, I think. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, look, Chris has done a pretty remarkable job, I think, of trying to stay out of the fray and sort of manage the, the bureau during a really difficult time with the president you know, consistently criticizing him and, and his leadership and, and the role the FBI is playing in these, con- in these 
types of investigations. The norm at the Justice Department, as you all know well, is you know to not to comment on investigations. So you have an, if you have a grand jury indictment uh, uh, subpoena issued, there is no proper way for the Justice Department to respond to our conversation or other conversations about the meaning of that in, of that subpoena. You know what was that subpoena for? Or what what's the purpose of that? So. There's lots of reasons. I mean, I know we're focusing on Hunter Biden and that I, I, I get it. But like, as I was listening and, and reading about this, you know, I think there are a number of reasons why the FBI might subpoena the laptop or the, or the hard drive, including to focus on, you know, Russian uh, influence operations as, as the target of the investigation. We just kind of don't know and we're not going to find out. And it's not and it would be, you know, it would be beyond Comey level of inappropriateness for the for the FBI to to have a press conference and explain exactly what they're doing here, uh, especially, you know, two weeks before the election. So there's lots of possibilities, and but the Justice Department and the FBI are not going to talk about it in the course of this investigation. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we should right. note that Ron Johnson, the uh, chairman of the Homeland Security Committee, has written to Ray asking for answers about all this uh, by next week, I believe. I would say there is zero chance right, right. that Chris Ray is going to respond with any substantive explanation of what that. Uh, well, what is the chance of, of Bill Barr weighing in and confirming the existence of an investigation? I, I think Hunter? Barr. <laughs> I, I know I, I get blowback every time I say this, but I think, uh, you know, Barr does have some limits to how far he will go. On my Twitter feed, I'm sure uh, as soon as this you know, goes I, out. I, I do think on that point, I do attacks. think like, you know, we, there have been some recent events that have sort of pushed in that direction on Barr with re- particularly the. The closing down of, of the investigation of the, into the unmasking. Unmasking, yeah. Yeah, it's sort of interesting, a counter to the, you know, sort of the most uh, extreme views of Barr as pure Although politics. He did it very quietly, I, I assume, <laughs> hoping that the president wouldn't wouldn't find out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he, did it without, he did it without telling anybody. We had to break the story that he'd even done it for them to acknowledge it. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, Bill right. Barr can read the polls as well as anybody else. And to your point, Mike, I mean, what would possibly be in it for Bill Barr to, you know, 15 days from a, an election to come out and confirm an investigation into the son of the Democratic nominee? I mean, presuming that Bill Barr also does not think that he's likely to have this job at, in a second Trump administration, I see no okay, uh, Just to wrap this part of it up, and then I got one other subject, which I want to raise with both you guys, but to wrap this up, what's your respective takes on the way Twitter and Facebook handled this, in Twitter's case, blocking people seeking to retweet the New York Post story? Matt, you want to take that one first? Yeah, you know, I, I'm... Uh... I think this is I'm pretty sympathetic to those companies trying to make these decisions in real time in in sort of unprecedented context, you know, like how do they enforce their policies around uh, not putting out false information or or information that they believe is harmful, like in the in the coronavirus context, you're not putting out false information around, you know, around use of masks, for example. I think they're trying they're making they're really trying to do. The best they can under really difficult circumstances. I I I don't have a sense of whether or not Facebook was right or wrong or Twitter was right or wrong. Yeah, I mean, in this case, it's it's different because they didn't know whether the information was false. Right, 
Right. So it's harder, right? It's yeah, harder but to Twitter's initial explanation for doing so, which was that they weren't going to allow the retweeting of material that had not been authorized to, or to where be they didn't obtained. know the, prov- the provenance of the information. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that I thought was pretty outrageous. Right. So much more difficult, I think, to, to, to justify. I think that's right. And, and here, I, like, I think, again, I'm, I sort of applaud the, the, them for at least taking a stab at trying to do this. I just think it's really hard and, and we're, we're a long way from them getting it right in every case. Shane? I found the responses confusing. And given I understand that they're sort of improvising here and they're kind of writing a playbook as, as new experiences present themselves, you know, they gave different explanations at one point saying, well, we can't let anything that might have been the product of hacked materials be retweeted or posted. But A, there was no indication the material was hacked. And, you know, B, uh, you know, there have been other stories that have been clearly written about people that are probably based on, you know, materials that were hacked. I mean, go ask Elliot Broidy how he feels about that. And they didn't stop those stories from spreading. So it just felt a little bit, I mean, my first instinct, honestly, was has somebody at the FBI tipped off the social media companies that this is? I actually had the exact same reaction because these social media platforms have very close relationships with law enforcement, as you know, um, and the intelligence community. And there are informal, uh, there should be, there are informal, uh, you know, channels and back channels and conversations going back and forth. So I wondered about that. One thing I did hear. By the way, can I just say on that, Dan, Jim Baker, as you may know, Jim Baker, former general counsel at the FBI, is now deputy general counsel at Twitter. So speaking of the sort of connection. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That is very interesting. I, I mean, the, the one other thing I was going to say that may have been the reason that they did this uh, that I have subsequently heard is what I was referring to before is that their reason for kind of putting the kibosh on the New York Post story was because the Post did not delete the personal information and metadata on these emails. And that was a violation of, of their policy. But they were if that's the case, they were terrible about communicating that. They did these Twitter th- threads explaining their policy. And, you know, as to your point, Shane, it was utterly confusing what their rationale was. So switching gears, we're at the stage when people looking at the polls see the likelihood of a Biden victory. And then, of course, speculation about who will be serving in key national security and intelligence Posts in yeah, we're a, wondering uh, if Shane is going to be CIA director. <laughs> um, <laughs> I want Matt to go back. I got, he's got yeah. my vote. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Matt, you may want to um, give us your thoughts on that subject and whether you have some interest yourself. Look, I mean, he, the, there, there are so many really incredibly qualified people around around uh, Vice President Biden. It's it's pretty remarkable when you look at the, the number of people who are, you know, in his circle, having served uh, in government for you know several decades and having been somebody who was on the Intelligence Committee, of course, foreign relations in the Senate and then obviously as vice president. So and then you look at not only the folks who are within his direct orbit, who have national security experience and intelligence experience, but then you have all the folks who were part of the Obama team who are out now, and you know a number of those. I mean, who would be you know well positioned to serve in a position in, in a Biden cabinet or Biden government? 
And then the other thing that occurs to me, and not that necessarily these folks would be back in government, but I think it's possible, there are a number of Republican national security leaders who are at least form, you know, formerly had been in Republican positions under President Bush who have supported Vice President Biden explicitly this time, not just coming out against Trump as they did in 2016, but have said in this time, it's a binary choice, we're supporting uh, yeah. Biden. And, you know, an interesting notion would be as a as a means of sort of saying, hey, we're this is a this would be sort of consistent with Biden. Right. Where I'm going to pull in the best person, regardless of who they've served in the past. And here here's somebody who was a, you know, a really great leader under President Bush. And, and I think they'd be the right person. For Do this you want job. to name some names? I mean, I was going to ask you that question, which is what what should Joe Biden do if he becomes president to send the message that the intelligence community is not going to be politicized under this administration, and they're going to, in fact, roll back, you know, a lot of the politicization that uh, that Trump did. So what, as a s- symbolic act, or if there's a particular person that you think maybe he should appoint to a high-level national security position, who would that be? Yeah, I mean, there, there are dozens of people, Dan, who ha- are fit that bill, honestly. You know, a number of them have come out publicly. And I, I think, look, I do think that's kind of what I was getting at. Like, a key goal from day one is to uh, sort of rebalance the intelligence com- community and and move away from the politicization that's occurred over the past four years. And, and, you know, one really strong way to do that is to appoint people who are perceived as being apolitical or who, who even have served under other administrations. And again, I think there are there's any number of people who would fit that bill. Well, Matt artfully avoided mentioning any names in his answer to those questions. So Shane, I want some names, DNI, CIA, uh, National Security Advisors, State Department, DOD, take it away. Sure. Well, Michael Morell, who was the former deputy director of the CIA and was the acting director, I mean, he's been pretty prominently among the people, I think, advising the Biden campaign. There's a lot of talk that he, I think, would like to be CIA director. I think a lot of people sort of look to him as a, as a leading candidate for that. I wonder if it wouldn't be hard for Biden to replace a uh, woman with a white male um, yes, and which whether is- he might go for an Avril Haines. Avril Haines you took the words out of my mouth. Yeah. yeah, Avril Haines, who, of course, has been the deputy director at the agency. She's been deputy national security advisor, uh, you know, a, a widely respected, incredibly hardworking, smart person. It would be it would be a, a very smart political move, potentially, for Biden, because he's not going to keep Gina Haspel. Uh, I don't think Trump would keep Gina Haspel, frankly, if he's Electric. Trump's not going to keep um, anybody. I was keeping anybody. Yeah, yeah not going to keep even Ray either. But yeah. um, so that that's the you know Tom Donilon's name surfaces a lot in these discussions uh, around somebody who might want to come back into the administration in that kind of capacity. Uh, you know, Jake Sullivan and Brian McKeon are the two guys who are kind of running the portfolio. I gather for a lot of these issues in the campaign. Presumably, Jake is somebody you know who obviously he has this, a long history in the Obama administration would come back in a senior role. I think everybody expects Michelle Flournoy will be the Defense Department secretary. I mean, she's only been up for that job like 87 <laughs> times. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so those are some of I think, the big names that, that I hear. And, you know, I haven't really considered the whole question of like trying to extend the olive branch by appointing a Republican. It's, it's an interesting idea. 
you know, and there and there's history of that, you know. Uh, I, you know, I got to push back on that a little bit because the shadow of the Iraq war, you know, looms so large. So you go back to Bush era, you've got to find somebody who was not yeah, a big blinking, supporter right. of the Iraq war. And that could be pretty tough to do. Yeah, I think that could be really tough. You know, it, but it, it, it is the truth, though, that I mean, there will be people falling all over themselves to come serve in a Biden administration. And the people who are informally advising the campaign, you know, they're not all people who, you know, like Matt and others who had a public profile. There are some people who come from further down, you know, uh, in the bureaucracy and the three letter agencies who, you know, you know, really don't, they're not household names, um, but who potentially could come back in or, or be persuaded. I, what I tend to hear on the flip side of this too is talking to career people in the intelligence community is that if Trump is reelected, you know, people saying that's it, I'm out, and the potential of seeing a real exodus at the senior career level, you know, people who are sort of at the you know assistant director and below kind of levels in some of these agencies that are basically the people who you know, run the place day to day, that there's a real sense that they wouldn't want to stay on. And that may be, you know, pushing people even more to want to try and get on the Biden train. But a couple of other names uh, just worth mentioning. Tony Blinken seems to be a natural for national security advisor. I've heard Chris Coons named as a, Mm -hmm. a potential secretary of state. That seems to make some sense. He's the kind of has the kind of profile you'd look for that. Um, Well, and and Susan Rice is going to get some very senior position. She was uh, a What what would that be? DNI? Well, it could be secretary of state. Yeah. That means she that was supposed to be her job before she got the 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 UN ambassadorship consolation prize for walking the Benghazi plank, right? I mean, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, that, you know, what about Pete Buttigieg? I mean, you know, he, he incredibly impressive. Everyone in the campaign obviously has national security experience. I mean, it would be sort well. Of, wait a second. I as mean, mayor was, of uh, Indianapolis, <laughs> he wasn't. It wasn't Indianapolis. It was. Oh no, where was it? South Bay. South, South Bend. Bend. Yeah, South Sorry, Bend. South Bend. But what yeah. about you know another name we haven't yeah. thrown out? I mean, Sue Gordon, who is you know unceremoniously dispatched for, as the number two at DNI. Uh, you know, she's working in private sector now. But that's somebody who I think if a President Biden said, "Would you like to come back and be the DNI, or potentially even be the director of CIA?" Which is where and she's a, career, a kind of a career professional, a right? Career she doesn't person. have. Yeah, that's right. I mean, just to show you, right, there are, it's just an extraordinary number of, extraordinary amount of talent out there. It's a deep bench, yeah. It's an an A-list, it's not. Yeah, and it just keeps going. And, and, but I, I, if I could, I mean, I think Shane's last point there a a moment ago is a really important one. I I hear the same thing, both within the intelligence community, but also within the Department of Justice, that the, the senior career people that are, make, that make those places run are holding on barely. And, And, you know, and. They can make it, you know, obviously to January. But if if Biden is not elected, you know, I think it, it, you would see, as Shane said, a, a, a potentially see an exodus of those folks who who have managed to stay for four years, but really couldn't. Which does remind me, what about AG? We haven't speculated on that. Oh, I've got less of a read on AG, but I mean, maybe Susan Rice would like to be attorney general. I mean, you know, she's saying enough. That it would be that would be a very interesting plot twist. Uh, yeah, um, I think you know, I do think you'll see some of the same influence, or at least a, a strong factor will be similar to the IC or the intelligence community. That will be to depoliticize that position and to look for somebody who will not come in as a perceived 
you know, um, political figure. Well, that would like that would mean that it, it likely would not be Adam Schiff because there, there was a lot <laughs> no. of uh, there. No, there was talk about Adam Schiff as attorney general. Well, that would make for an interesting confirmation hearing yeah. with Republicans. Particularly if but, Hunter Biden is being investigated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, all right, guys. Well, this was um, uh, this was great uh, discussion, and um, you know, obviously, an unfolding story on those Hunter Biden emails. So, Shane, I'll be looking for your reporting and the Post's reporting um, on this. And Matt, we'll come back to you when you get named to some high-level position in the Biden administration. Thanks for having me, guys. Good to see everybody. Thanks, guys. It's great to see you. And we now have with us Vivian Schiller, a former chief of news at Twitter, now the executive director of Aspen Digital, a uh, program of the Aspen Institute. Vivian, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be back. So a lot of controversy and debate over the New York Post stories about Hunter Biden, and in particular, the way Twitter and to a lesser degree, Facebook has handled this. Uh, Twitter initially blocked access to those stories, giving as an explanation that it was a violation of its ban on hacked materials or materials that were obtained without appropriate access. That has since caused the company to back down a bit. Give us your take on the way Twitter has handled this and how Twitter should be handling a story like this. Yeah, and it's interesting because Twitter and Facebook both took actions, but based took different actions based on different sets of reasons. So Twitter initially said they were blocking the tweet of the New York Post story because, yes, they have a policy about distributing hacked material as a means to try to suppress motivation for other people to go and hack materials. They later also said that it was because these materials contained private information, and then they they backtracked on the whole thing. Where it got a little confusing, I just think it's really important to, to say, had the article, I am completely confident that if the New York, it wasn't about the New York Post reporting, it was the fact that the New York Post had the documents, the veracity of which, by the way, we still don't know, but that's neither here nor there at the moment, that the, it had the documents embedded in the article. If it had just been, there are these materials that say X, Y, and Z, they wouldn't have taken the action. It was the embedding of the documents themselves. Because, because those documents had the personal and private information in them. Is that, is that the reason? And also because they were hacked documents. It wasn't a story about hacked documents. Well, but they don't know that they were hacked documents. I, mean, we I, don't know I think Twitter's explanation was that they were documents that were obtained without proper yeah, yeah, exactly. authority, uh, with permission, which is what I got to say, as a journalist, that really, you know, raised my hackles. I mean, from yeah. the New York Times reporting on Trump's tax returns to well, hold on, hold Edward on. Snowden's documents, all material that 
was obtained without a proper permission, but was certainly newsworthy. Right. It's important. I think precision here, sorry to get really wonky, but precision here, I think is really, really important. First of all, like you, I am as a journalist, I'm concerned about that policy. But just to be clear, the New York Times story about Trump's taxes did not include any embedded documents. In fact, by design, they said we are not linking or embedding these documents to protect our sources. It was an article about the taxes that the journalists saw, but they didn't include the documents. So that's number one. That said, I agree with you. I think it is, you know, whether or not, an, in, you know, any individual listening right now believes that that, you know, that whether the New York Post story and those documents are real or not is neither here nor there because by setting a precedent, yeah, you do have concerns. What about Snowden? What about you know every other whistleblower that's put documents out there? I completely agree, and I think that's why they walked it back. There, you know, there's a lot of commentary out there that they said, oh, you know, it's pressure from the Republicans. I don't buy it. I think they moved too quickly and they realized they were setting a, a, a precedent that might not be able. They might not be able to maintain. So two questions for you, Vivian. First of all, we talked about how Facebook and Twitter took these different approaches. Why did Twitter uh, go so quickly to, to sort of the nuclear option, you know, banning links altogether, as opposed to what Facebook did, which was to limit, you know, sort of amplification of the story, limit exposure during that time, maybe people would have learned more about its veracity, although I guess we, we really haven't. <laughs> Right. So just to be clear, just so that everybody understands, Facebook, they didn't take the story down, but they throttled it in their algorithm. So and you know, on Facebook, there's so many posts. If something if something is is throttled so that it doesn't, you know, show up high in, in the algorithm, it may as well not even exist. So mm-hmm. they use that approach. But Facebook works different than Twitter. Yes, Twitter does. Uh, yeah, our, our news feeds, unless you have them specifically set to be cr- just reverse chronological, there is an algorithm that, that drives the, the content that you most want to see. But it, it's, it doesn't have the same impact as Facebook. I mean, for instance, I follow a bunch of journalists. You probably do, too. They would all be retweeting that story or talking about that story. It's going to show up on my news feed. That's very different than the way Facebook works. Because Twitter is in real time, you can't really you don't really have they don't really have that option. I'm not defending them. I'm just explaining that the platforms work very differently that way. They also seem to sort of botch the communications here. I mean, these, you know, kind of yeah. multiple stories and then walking it back and not really explaining well why they walked it back. Why Look, I mean, I have some sympathy. You know, these things are happening in yeah. real time. Yeah. There's enormous sense of crisis and um what what was your reaction to sort of the way they just handled the kind of PR piece of this. Yeah, not great. In fact, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey called his own people out on Twitter publicly to say, we didn't handle this well. I don't know that he meant we, but <laughs> yeah. so for sure, they didn't really, you know, the key is you want to show your work. You want to explain what you're doing, why you're doing it, and where in your terms of service or your policy, what part of your terms of service or policy defend that decision. But as the days get, as we get closer and closer to the final day of voting on November 3rd, you know, emotions are high, there's panic amongst, in many, in many corners of the country and the world about, you know, false information, disinformation. 
I mean, plenty of us expected that among the many October surprises could be these hacked documents, which may or may not include, uh, which may or may not be actual documents or might include a combination of actual documents and false documents. And, you know, the platforms and, and news organizations have been thinking about this for a long time, but you can't anticipate every scenario. And so, you know, you try to take your best move and sometimes you screw it up. But the communication definitely left a lot to be desired. So a couple of things. Um, you mentioned the one distinction between the New York Times reporting on the tax returns and this material is that the Times didn't embed the documents. Now, normally, I want to see the documents. Yeah. I want the documents to be embedded so I could inspect them myself and not rely on the interpretation of the journalists writing about them. It always adds to the credibility when you can show you have the material. So I guess I'm not sure why embedding the documents is more of a mark against you than not embedding them from Twitter's perspective. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm not necessarily defending it. I'm just. A, uh, but, you know, their initial statement as to why they blocked the tweet was specifically about not spreading unverified. I, I'm sorry, I don't have the language in front of me, but not hacked documents, but doc, documents that were obtained uh, without permission or yeah, exactly, know, without authorization. Exactly. Yeah. So the fact that the documents were linked in the article by the reason they suppressed the article was because it actually contained the documents themselves. I'm not, again, I'm not necessarily defending the decision. I'm just explaining that it was a bit of a nuance. And I just saw a lot on Twitter, people saying, what about the New York Times tax article? So that is the difference, rightly or wrongly. I agree with you. I want to see the documents too. On the other hand, I also trust certain news organizations more than others to give me documents that I can <laughs> really? be confident are real. <laughs> I will point out that even Fox News was today was reported that Fox News didn't want to touch the story. They, they passed so they didn't the have story, confidence yeah. in it. So, but this does leave us with the you know the dilemma of what you do with a story like this. Now, you and I we interviewed you for the Conspiracy Land series I did recently about. Trump's deranged tweets about Joe Scarborough murdering a, uh, a former staffer of his, something for which there was absolutely no evidence and was clearly false. And we gave Twitter a bit of a hard time for not taking that down. In this case, we don't know whether these emails are false or not. We don't know whether they're true or they're false. Right. So this kind of falls into a, you know, a, a different category. And the question is, what should social media companies be doing in situations like this? Well, there's, their choices are not binary. It's not leave it up or take it down. And in fact, you know, Twitter has deployed a number of other options in other cases. You can put up an interstitial that uh, somebody needs to click through that says, you know, the veracity of this has not, you know, is still being questioned, whatever the wording would be. You click through, then you can see the link. Or it could put just a, a you know, a, a warning on the tweet itself. Or I'm just saying there are, there are, there are lots and lots of other options. Well, those seem like great options. Yeah. Why well, didn't I, I mean? Why, I mean, we've been debating this issue. I mean, at least since 2016. Why didn't they do that? Yeah, it's a great question, and I suspect they maybe are wishing they had. <laughs> so, is there? I mean, look, Danny makes a great point. I mean, we have been wrestling with what we do in situations like this since 2016. And um, in 2016, you know, we had Podesta emails, the DNC emails. In those cases, you know, the 
Clinton campaign was urging us not to report on them, but the emails were authentic. They were real and in some cases had news value, even though it was part of a Russian influence operation. In this case, there are suggestions, certainly that Rudy Giuliani is reporting that he was being targeted as part of a Russian influence operation, so that on its face, since he was the primary source for the New York Post, raises some questions about how the material came into his possession. But that said, it sounds like, you know, we haven't made much progress in figuring out what to do, especially during the closing weeks of an election. Right. But look, you know, no self-respecting news organization is not going to report something that is going to shy away from reporting something newsworthy, no matter what the provenance. That said, you know, that's why, you know, whether it's the Podesta hack or Sony, that's why all those stories, you know, were reported. And if I were, you know, if, if I had been in charge, some of those stories I, I would have also thought need to be reported because they're newsworthy. That said, there are things you can do to make sure that your audience, if you're a news organization, and you can do this if you're a Twitter or Facebook as well, understands that you are seeing these materials because, you know, insert foreign entity here, North Korea or Russia or what have you wants you to see it. That is really, really important context. Well, well, and I have to say, I, I have been one of the things that I've noticed lately is that when uh, RT, the Russian media, yeah. state media organ, tweets something, there is a little notice there that says clearly that this is Russian state, you know, media content, and it does give you that sort of context that you need. You know, I think an interesting thought exercise would be, I mean, if those. Podesta, something equivalent to the Podesta hack happened now, what would Twitter have done? I mean, that is hacked material. That is clearly hacked material. And I wonder if they would have suppressed it. I mean, I I wouldn't think you should suppress it in the same way that a news organization shouldn't suppress something newsworthy, again, irrespective of provenance. But labeling is a really powerful tool and labeling that this was part of a, you know, documents released by, you know, a Russian agency is really important context and let people look at it with that context. And I suspect that's what Twitter was, was when Twitter made the decision about the New York Post story, I think they probably were thinking of this as an equivalent, and I don't work there, so let me just be clear, I'm speculating, that as equivalent to what we saw with Podesta. I just want to um, go over some of what we talked about when we did that Conspiracy Land series about your time at Twitter was was relatively early on, 2014. And it was in the aftermath of the Arab Spring. And the ethos at Twitter was, I think you used the phrase from the former general counsel, we're the free speech wing of the free speech party. It was to let it all out there. That, right. you more know, speech it, is, is more, you know. More speech is better than less speech. And, you know, we're contributing to the spread of democracy and free speech around the world. It looks very different to you today. Yeah. It was a colossal failure of imagination. Honestly, I I don't, you know, people look for nefarious reasons for all of that, you know, whether it's, you know, into a certain, you know, commercial interests or, you know, some kind of, you know, other conspiracy theories that people dream up. It is a failure, colossal failure of imagination. I think that's the case for Twitter. 
and Facebook and you know, YouTube and others. It's certainly not in their interests for their platforms to be overtaken by you know, manipulation campaigns from foreign entities. That's not in anybody's commercial interests. And I just think it was, you know, it was pure naivete. You know, the things we were worried about in 2014 on Twitter was just beginning to bubble up issues around harassment, online harassment and abuse, which is a huge problem, continues to be a huge problem. But, you know, the idea of these massive information, disinformation campaigns was sort of barely a glimmer in anyone's eye. And this is not very long ago. Vivian, what is, uh, I mean, this is a big question, but I know you've been thinking about this, the sort of path forward for these uh, social media platforms in trying to balance free expression and limit disinformation and, you know, the amplification of, of lies that are damaging. I mean, is there, is there a, some kind of a process that we need? Does, you know, uh, does the next president have to, have to lead a commission? Obviously, you don't want too much government involvement, but <laughs> how do you deal with this? It's so hard. It's so hard. And there are groups all over the world. I'm part of these. There are commissions and task forces and blue ribbon panels that are, that are all, you know, looking at this and coming up with a variety of solutions, some of which make me deeply uncomfortable, like, you know, government regulation over speech. On the other hand, this purely leaving it up to market forces and counting on people to do the right thing is also not, is imperfect because there's just not enough transparency. So I think that there will be a massive reckoning once we get on the other side of this election, you know, whenever it ends, we don't know. And I think that this will be a big area of focus. It certainly will be, you know, for me at the Aspen Institute, we do a lot of work on this and we're we're gonna be, you know, diving back into this. It's not like we've been ignoring it in, in, a, in a big way after the elections. You know, there's a lot of chatter on the Hill and Washington, you know, about, you know, changing section 230, which is probably a subject for another podcast and how that would impact it. It make, you know, I worry about overreach and overreaction to be perfectly honest. By the way, when you mentioned the election, uh, you know, how the social media companies will handle election night and in the days after, if it's not yeah. clear who the winner is, is a huge issue. But look, uh, if there is a um, a presidential commission, uh, we will nominate you uh, <laughs> to you. be on it. Skullduggery <laughs> will get will give you um, our endorsement uh, to right. help figure out uh, how to sort these things out. Uh, Vivian, thanks a lot for joining us once again on Skullduggery. 